Sometimes people come to Element and they get a little offended because of how we dress or things like that. I, I usually do walk around without shoes on, but today and for the next couple weeks, it's probably going to be like that because I hurt my foot and I have no idea what I did. And I don't really get like normal insurance for like two more weeks. And then I'm going to go to the podiatrist and figure out what in the world's wrong because I can't stick it in a shoe. Every time I do, all my joints go. I don't think there's anything on it. Isn't that like exterior? It's never happened. Anyway, welcome to Element where I tell you about my feet problems. Why aren't when you show up? If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the community tables around the room. You have a smartphone. You get an app called Uversion. You click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS, and you will get all of the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, all of that stuff in there. Uh, I got just one thing before we get into the message today, and that is, uh, many of you know Wendy Stanley. She actually coordinates our greeters and does lots of plays. Uh, Britt is the guy that does our softball teams. That's his wife. Uh, they, a while ago, they found uh, a tumor uh, inside of her. It, it's benign, uh, but it was pushing on her lung and collapsing part of her lung. And so finally this week she went down. She had surgery. They removed it. it was, the doctor said it was 12 by 8. Yeah, and he said it's about football size. And so I asked her this morning, I said, so, hey, do you, do you feel lighter when you walk? And she just giggled. She didn't answer. She just goes, ha, ha. It's <laughs> a good question, right? All right, well, uh, anyway, so, so they took it out. Britt Brit wants pictures of it, or, or he wants to bring it home. And I'm like, ew. Anyway, but, but she's doing okay. If you guys are thinking about sending her cards, she may actually be home on Tuesday, so you don't need to send cards out of Cedar, Cedar Sinai. You can send them to her address here. If you don't have that, you can email us, and we'll get that over to you. But what she really wants more and more is your prayers. She's feeling very, very sick still with all the medication that she's on, so if you could continue to lift her up in prayer, that would be amazing. All right, I want you to stay on there reading God's Word. This is James chapter 4, verse 6, and it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would learn to be a humble people. Father, those who, who take our selfishness and we set it aside, and those who learn to walk in the ways that you call us to, so that we will be a people who reconcile with others if you have reconciled yourself to us that we'd be a people who honor you by how we live our lives and love those around us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are going through the Song of Solomon, <clears throat> the Summer of Love. This is intimacy and, and sexuality and love and grace and reconciliation. Uh, for the last three weeks, uh, we have been looking at the reality that sets into a marriage after all the newness has went off, and that is essentially fighting, where we start fighting with each other a lot more. The passages when you get to Song of Solomon 5 and 6, these are the reality, and there's a lot of truth. That's why I've taken three weeks to get through these couple of chapters. Uh, the course of true love rarely runs smoothly for long. For every moment of joy that we experience, there are moments of hurt and pain. But it is the openness that lovers have with each other that makes possible both extremes. And love, no matter if you're married or not, love can never guarantee perfect performance in every relationship. I don't care what Hollywood or the magazines tell you, it just doesn't happen. Now, anybody in here ever buy a new car? Okay. Anybody ever ride in a new car? Yeah, someone? Okay, good. What's most of you have? Now, what, what do they smell like? 
Yeah, chemical goodness, exactly. That, that's what new cars smell like. Everything works right. The knobs adjust right. They stay where they're supposed to. Radio stations tune in like they're supposed to. But then you get a few years later, say like my pickup that I sold a couple weeks ago, and it smells like dirt and dog, and the knobs, the ones that are left, don't actually stay where they're supposed to, and the seats tear, the shocks bottom out, the car rattles, and it's no longer new. And we want to trade it in. We want a newer or better model. And that is exactly how a lot of people treat their marriages. After all the newness wears off, it's no longer easy. People want to trade it in and try just just get something new. But if you are somebody who puts in the effort, who vacuums the floors and changes the shocks and the oils and the broken knobs and you do valve jobs and you hone the cylinders when they need to be overhauled, you eventually get a classic car. And the value just keeps going up and up and up. Now, we at Element, we want your marriages to be, we want them to turn into classic cars, that the values just keep going up and up and up. So when people ask, what did you learn in church today? I go, I need to have a classic car. That's, that's what I learned in church today. So what I want to do is I'll give you a little bit of review before we hit the rest of chapter 6 today and get to that conclusion of the fight. Uh, we are called to be a people who understand that biblically marriage is covenant and consummation both, hand in hand. Covenant are the vows that we say that bind ourselves to one another. And then consummation is marital intimacy where you consummate your love with each other. And this should be done frequently. Uh, before the wedding and then the, the first few months after the wedding, it's very exciting. Everything is very new. But real life essentially hits a few months or a few years after you get married because that's when marriage kind of really begins. Song of Solomon 5, it, it has hit. It, it has now begun. Solomon's out late with matters of state as he normally is. His wife is, a, is an early riser, so she goes to bed early and she's angry because he's not home again. He gets home. He is tired. He is frustrated. He's worked a long day. He's needing oneness. He needs intimacy. He needs release. And Solomon comes to his bride's room and he finds the door locked because she's already in bed because she's kind of a passive aggressive. And she's like, I'll just lock the door and I will show him what's up. He knocks on the door and she doesn't get up. So in chapter 5, verse 2, he uses his best line. He says, open to me, which is open the door. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. So he says all the nice little frilly things he's supposed to. She comes back with excuses in in verse 3 of chapter 5. Oh, I put off my garment. Oh, I took off my robe. I can't get out of bed and walk to the door because it's 10 feet and I may freeze to death. Uh, I I wash my feet. Oh, my feet will get dirty if I get up and, and, and walk to the door. So Solomon leaves. He's rejected. He's frustrated. And she goes back to sleep. When she goes back to sleep, she has a nightmare that their love is lost. And so when she wakes up from this nightmare, she realizes, I've hurt my husband. And she's rejected him. She's belittled him, so she seeks out her friends to help her put this back together. Now, her friends are very godly friends. In chapter 5, verse 9, they ask her a question. They say, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure as thus? They say, so why are you coming and seeking us? What did you do? What happened? Why did you reject him? Is he a bad guy that you do that? And she essentially says no, because her friends are able to reset her focus onto why she loves him in the first place. And she spends the remainder of chapter 5 telling you how great he is. She remembers why she loves him in the first place, why she married him in the first place. In chapter 5, verse 16, she ends with, This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And that's a very important line that we, in our marriages, must come back to, that this is your lover 
and this is your friend, both. Those things must come together because that is going to be key to reconciliation. Now, last week I talked to you about learning a servant understanding versus the selfishness that we normally portray. I told you that we must have the servant understanding to resolve conflict, to learn how to be givers and not takers in relationship. So I told you to communicate. You've got to do five things. You've got to, number one, take time for each other. You've got to, number two, speak what you mean. You've got to, number three, understand that your spouse's perception of life is different than you, and that's okay. It is okay. Number four, you need to listen. And number five, you've got to feedback what they're saying so you, they know that you heard what they said. Now, sometimes in marriages, we will do stupid, silly things that just make no sense. And sometimes in a fight, someone will be like, why did you do that? Or why did you say that? And the honest answer to that is, I, I don't know. It just, it just kind of came out. That's how my fights normally go. What? I, it's me. I don't, it's not you, trust me. It's, it, it's, it's me. You know, and, and for Song of Solomon, what happened to this couple, this whole issue started because she was selfish, and I'm not saying that he wasn't. Selfishness is not just a woman's sin. A man does it as well. Selfishness is equal opportunity. But what you have here, and I love that this is in Scripture, is this is an honest look at a bedroom conflict. And almost nobody talks about these kind of things. But we are, right? Because we're element and we go with that stuff. Uh, Mark Driscoll says there's four ways people are selfish in the bedroom. I think there's more than that. I'll cover mine, but I'll give you his four and then mine. He says the first way is to deny your spouse. When your spouse says, hey, can we? How about that? And you're like, no. Well, how about no? And maybe you get in bed, you roll over and give them your back. Sometimes the coldest place on earth is the bed when you're mad at each other. The second thing is you don't initiate. You don't pursue. You always make them take the risk of being rejected. Now, I, granted, usually in the marriage, one person will initiate more than the other. But it's nice when the other person does every once in a while. I mean, it's awesome, by the way. Okay, number three. Sometimes you deny by doing as little as possible. It's like, oh, can we get together? Yeah, hurry up. Oh, i got to go to sleep. You know, that's, that's not really... The greatest thing in the world. And number four is sabotage. These people laugh. It's like, I've been there. <laughs> number four is sabotage. Maybe, maybe bedtime is coming and, and a nasty comment. You just throw a nasty comment or they'll throw a nasty comment or you start a project. Again, it's a passive-aggressive way to deny your spouse. Some sabotage, people make themselves as unattractive as possible before going to bed. Bedtime comes. He stinks. He won't brush his teeth. Maybe she puts on a mud mask and a floor-length moo-moo and she's like, oh, you want to be together? It's like... <laughs> No, I feel like I should put candy in your bag. That's what I feel like I should do. You know, <laughs> these are selfish ways that we deny our spouses. Now, I think there's other reasons why people deny as well. And let me just hit these real quick. I think the first one is abuse. Abuse. Studies have shown that fully one third of women have been abused either as children or adults, men to a lesser degree than that. If you have been abused and have never gotten help, that is going to affect your marriage. Sometimes in marriages, there are broken bones. What I mean is this. There's pain, there's hurt, there's, there's an abuse from a relationship. Maybe you were raped or maybe you gave yourself to somebody and then you get married and you feel very sad about that, that you gave yourself to somebody before this person that you married to. Maybe you felt betrayed at some point. And if you don't give your pain to Christ and repent before him, you will never heal properly. These are like bones that need to be reset. Our souls need to be reset. Christians many times will say things like, well, I don't want to talk about it. That's in my past. But if you've actually gone through it and gotten over that, you could talk about it. You could help other people with that. You could say, this is what happened. This is what I learned. And this is what God has been teaching me. Sometimes people who get married, they think, I'll get married and that will just move me on. Then I'll all be okay. And it doesn't move you on. If you've been abused, addicted, you should be in a gospel community where other of God's people can walk along beside you. 
And if the pain is really deep, you should probably seek out a biblical counselor. I can refer you to a couple if you would like that can help you walk through this pain and reset the brokenness. Because if not, you will never feel safe and you will deny your spouse. And that is abusing your own spouse in marriage. The second thing is selfishness. I I like to call selfishness covenant abuse because Christians like to say, oh, we're in covenant together. This would be a guy who wants to have sex a lot, but he's not loving or nice. He doesn't work hard, doesn't pray with his wife. He overlooks all of his obligations and only wants the benefits. Now, women do this as well. Sometimes women in covenant abuse, they will say, well, he can't divorce me. He can't cheat. He can't look at poor. He can't do any of that, which he can't. Okay, um, um, yes, you're right. But are you respecting him? Are you tending him? Are Are you having sex with him? Are you always saying, I'm not in the mood. Covenant is being aware of all that you get, but it is also being aware of all that you are supposed to give as well. Uh, the third one is fatigue. This is sometimes you show up and, and life is very busy and you're just too, t- oh, I'm so tired, I can't. Oh, I'm really tired. Well, you know what? Wash your face and drink a Red Bull. Figure, figure the, these things out. I mean, sometimes I'll say to my wife, I'll be like, oh, I'm really tired tonight. How about we get together earlier? You know, like, like that's such a big treat for her, but it's great for me. I'm like, hey, and she's like, okay. She's very, very good to me. And I let her know when I'm, when I'm really tired. Uh, the fourth one, control and manipulation. Sometimes people get into this in their relationship where it's like, oh, you want to have sex? Well, I'll say no because you didn't do A, B, and C. You punish by withholding. That is a sin. Uh, sometimes it's thinking there's something wrong with your spouse. What I mean is that is usually in a relationship, one person wants to have sex more than the other person. 80% of the time, statistically, this is men, but 20% of women want to have sex more than their men. So if that's you and your woman in this room and, and you feel odd your entire life because you want to have sex more than your husband, you're, you're normal. Okay, 20% of women feel that way, so, so that's okay. Now, the person who doesn't want to have sex as much usually thinks there's a problem with the person who does. They're normal too, all right? They're normal too. My wife knows I'm totally normal. I'm just crazy sometimes, but I'm totally normal. You know, in the scripture, the Bible never gives you a number of times per week a couple should have sex when they're married. But what it says is 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. It's in reference to sex. Now, maybe you go away, okay, honey, yeah, I'll go away and, and, and we'll pray. And before God, you'll be like, dear God, I beseech you on on behalf of my spouse, that you would just give them a little more desire for me. Amen. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's what you pray. And the last one, I think, is, is guilt because of the past. Maybe this is something you have done in your past. Maybe you have shame. Maybe you feel gross or like damaged goods. This could be before or after you are married. You must make sure in your marriage there are no issues of shame. You know, this, this is why at Element, we will tell you, pornography is the worst thing in the world because you are allowing something into your marriage that is pulling away from your oneness. And if you never come clean about that, I will tell you, a duplicitous life will never lead to oneness. And so sometimes in marriage, you must ask the very hard question is, do you have any secrets from me? Is there anything that we need to deal with that, that I need to know about? Because there are needs that need to be met on both sides. But in that, you must also remember that Jesus died for your sins so you could be forgiven, so they could be forgiven as well. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants you cleansed. God wants you to be renewed. God wants you righteous in his sight. Jesus is our redeemer, and you can have a new identity and a fresh start. So open to Song of Songs, chapter 6. What happens in Song of Songs 6 is you have an amazing thing where they come back together again. They meet at the end of this fight. They come to resolution. 
but the resolution is not quickly. The fight takes two chapters. He leaves the locked door. He's rejected. She sleeps the rest of the night. He goes to work the next day. He has to be frustrated, feeling this pit in his gut the entire day, which you really don't want a king like that sitting on the throne making judgments when he's all, off with their head. Uh, what do you want? Well, I just took my sheep across his river. Off with your head. You know, you, you don't want that when a king's all, all frustrated. And when she sits home all day, it causes her to reflect on everything that has happened. And they have an understanding for each other. And when they get together, instead of him at that point coming with bitterness and resentment, they come together and speak great words to one another. And they come to creative ways to meet each other's needs. Uh, all this culminates in what our culture would, would deem makeup sex. And Eric will cover that next week. <laughs> Here's the resolution. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Her gospel community says to her, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So her friends are like, Okay, you sought us out. We've reset you. Now let's get you guys together. Where where did he go? We'll help you find him. Verse 2, she says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the garden and gather the lilies. This is probably an allusion to his affairs of state. He's got to take care of things. He's a king. He has a job to do. So she says, Well, he's at work. Verse 3, she says, And I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And what she comes to, because her friends have helped reset her, is a place where she says, I know he loves me. No matter what my crazy heart wants to tell me, and it gets me in trouble all the time, I know he loves me. She starts to come to terms with being a king's wife. She reasserts her belief that he loves her. Despite all of Solomon's shortcomings, and I'm sure there are many because he's a dude and guys have a lot, she, he does make her feel loved. He does make her feel protected. He does make her feel cared for. And when she says that, that uh, in, in verse 2 that to graze in the garden and gather the lilies, and then in verse 3 she says he grazes among the lilies, she just equated those two verses together, which she actually said then he is Israel's shepherd, but he is my shepherd as well. And she sees him like that because of his love for her. I think there are two characteristics of a shepherd that men must understand. The first one is this, is that a shepherd is a protector, a protector. I tell you this all the time. I am not a big guy, but if you hurt my wife, I will kill you. And that is not a metaphor, all right? That is not a metaphor at all. And it's not because I see her as mine, but because I love her. Protection comes from love. It is not ownership. It is not control. An eastern shepherd would dedicate his life to the flock, even to the point of losing his life. A good husband lays down his life daily for his bride. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When a husband says, I will willingly lay down my wants and desires for you, it usually brings a like response from her. Now, if you've never done it, if you've been married years and you've never lived that way, it, and you start doing it, it might evoke a little bit of astonishment and how long is this going to last kind of, kind of attitude. But you go with it. You remain consistent. It's not just a day or two. It's not just a month. It is years. You keep going. You are consistent. And eventually it will evoke appreciation and thankfulness and her willing to sacrifice her wants for yours as well. Love brings love. Encouragement brings encouragement. This is protection. It is not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally as well. The second thing a shepherd is, is he is a leader. If you see Western shepherds, what they will do is they will drive their flock. It is, it is dogs and horses and whips and buggies and, and whatever. But an Eastern shepherd leads their flock. They walk in front of their flock. And if they walk on the sides or the back, it's for the purpose of protection. There are some times where several eastern flocks will actually get together. And all a shepherd do, has to do is call their sheep and they will separate. They will come out from the rest of that because they know their shepherd's voice. 
There have been people who have actually tried to imitate shepherds' calls, and it never works. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that we are his sheep, and we will follow his voice. When we're in the middle of all kinds of garbage, Jesus should be able to call us. His spirit should be able to convict us, and we will step out from where we are and follow him. The deep concern that a shepherd has for his flock is one of the reasons they listen to and follow him. The shepherd proves himself trustworthy over and over and over. Now, some of you guys in this room, you'll say, you may say things like, well, my wife doesn't want me to lead. She's always, in, she's always controlling. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't let me lead. I will tell you this. Most women don't mind being led when you live like Christ. Women do not want to be browbeaten, ridiculed, treated like an inferior imbecile. None of that is leadership. That is dictatorship, and that is abuse. You are to be like Christ. When Solomon's bride thinks of him, she thinks all the things that he does, that he is a good protector, he's a good leader. So she acknowledges her own mistakes and leaves Solomon in God's hands. She trusts God. And how does Solomon respond? With love and understanding. Verse 4, he see, they come together. I think she apologizes. She explains this is all that happened. In verse 4, he responds, You are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Now, most men, when they get in a fight, the first thing they want to do is lash back or withdraw into a shell. Both of these are ways to try and inflict pain and hurt on the other person, and that is not reconciliation. God calls us to be a people of repentance and reconciliation. When Solomon is angry, hurt, and rejected, he still loves her, and he tells her that. This is one of the reasons that Jews see a lot of parallels between the Song of Solomon and God's love for his bride. Because God reconciles to us. True love must learn to respond properly. This is why a marriage must be grounded in God's love for us. Because true love, as shown to us by God, demonstrates patience and confidence in God to work all things out. So he tells her, you are beautiful. Tirzah was a Canaanite city famous for its beauty. Honestly, don't raise your hands, guys. But how many of you would say anything but a compliment to your wife when she has rejected you? He compliments her. He says, you're like the most beautiful city. And then he says, lovely as Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where they lived. Essentially, he says, you are home to me. She is his home. I'll I'll tell you, for most men, this is true. Our wives are home. It's not a place. it's It's not a house. For men, it's a person. And this is why rejection hurts us so badly. You know, I, I tell my wife this all the time. Everything around us could fall apart as long as I have her, obviously, and Jesus, and her. We could handle anything. Because she is home to me. And so I think he tells her this. You're beautiful. You're home. And I think she looks up at him, looks in his eyes. Verse 5, because he says this. Turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. She's, he's like, I love you. And she looks at him and he's like, oh, don't look at me. Oh, my goodness. I hate it when you look at me like that. I mean, he, with a look, he is totally undone. I mean, I know this look, especially at the end of a fight. I know th- this look. I mean, arguments are not resolved by text message or, or email or phone calls. It's done face-to-face. She, he's, he's a little mad. He says, but I love you. And she looks at him, and he's like, oh, don't look me in the eye. I'm mad. I can't be mad when you look at me like that. I mean, my, my wife does this sometimes. And it's, not, it's not really a look, but she'll kind of sideways glance at me, and then she'll laugh at me. I'll be like, what are you laughing at? She goes, because you're funny. I'm not funny. I'm angry. I am green like the Hulk, you know, and she laughs, and then, and then I laugh. And, and it's impossible to be mad at in those times when, when she does that. The eyes give you away. I mean, couples who want to look at each other in the eye are going to have problems. 
So she looks him in the eyes like, oh, you overwhelm me. And then he says his greatest hits, all the stuff he's already said to her. Verse 5, your hair is like a flock of goats sleeping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flocks of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Now, some people think this virgins without number and the queens and the concubines, they think that Solomon already has extra queens and concubines. And it actually could be true. When the kingship would have passed to Solomon, all of, his, all of David's concubines would have went to him as well. It doesn't mean he slept with them. What he tells her is, you are more beautiful and more important to me than anybody else. I could have had anybody, but I want you. Verse 9, he says, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother appeared to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, they praised her. He tells her, you are amazing and everyone else knows you're amazing. Now, I've got to tell you, this is some astonishing comments from a person who has just been rejected, who has just spent his day at work probably pretty frustrated. But this is what reconciliation takes, a swallowing of pride, an eye to the restoration of the other person. In verse 10, he says, who is this that looks down from the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. All of these comments he now makes, he made earlier in the book. And you may think I'm repeating myself. I'm not. It's Solomon. He, he's repeating himself. While they were dating, he would say these exact things. On their wedding night, he says these things. You know why? Because early in a relationship, you say nice things to each other. You, you are very gracious. You're playful. You're on your best behavior. You have a lot of fun. You get married. Everything seems to change. Everything gets harder. You start to battle with each other. And then it's not honey and dear and sweetie and don't look me in the eye. You overwhelm me. You're so cute. It, it's words that start with A and end with whole and start with B and end with something you scratch. Right? That, that's what happens. Because we degenerate. We are selfish and we are fallen people. We become curt and distant and cold shoulder that's a word. But by reiterating what he said when they were dating and what he said on their wedding night, he is saying to her, my heart for you has not changed. I still love you. I am still attracted to you. I still desire you. I still delight in you. And even though we are in this rough patch, I want to get through it and honor you as you are supposed to be honored. It's an attitude that most people do not have when they fight, but it's an attitude that anybody who calls himself a Christian should have when they fight. Why? Because our focus is Jesus and not our own perceived hurt. Is the reconciliation and the repentance that God calls all people to. Now, the first week we talked about the start of this fight, I told you that we are selfish by nature and we are selfish by choice. And this is why Jesus must be the center and marriage is the priority, priority because anything else will not last. I told you why in marriage it's important to be an imitator of God because our God is a God who loves, who has acted in human history to express that love to his people. And that looks like Jesus coming to us in sheer and adulterated, unfiltered love, stripped of everything that could get in the way, naked, vulnerable, hanging on a cross. And he says, what were you going to do with me? In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his people his love in action. Is why for thousands of years, the central metaphor for Christianity is the message of the cross. It is central to life. It speaks to us of God's love and his action for his people, and we're to be imitators of that God, especially in our marriages. Scripture tells us 172 times that you are to remember these things that he tells you because we have a tendency to forget why are we to forgive and reconcile with others, especially our spouses? Because God forgave us. 
and he was without sin. He never hurt us. He never abused us. He never called his name. Yet we have sinned against him, and he comes and he reconciles to us. In order to understand reconciliation, especially in a marriage and especially in our lives, you need to understand three things. I recommend you all read a book called Death by Love, by the way. It's an excellent book that goes through a lot of issues. Uh, But three things. The first one is this. You sin. You sin. Now, you know, everyone except for Jesus who has ever lived sins. Will you marry or did you marry someone who sins? Yes. Okay, the the answer is yes. You're like, oh, yeah, I did. Yes, the answer is yes. Does, Does one person who sin plus one person who sins equal no sin? No, no. Does one person who sins plus one person who sins equals less sin? No. One person who sins plus one person who sins equals sin. And couples get married and they don't understand this and they say, well, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you said that. Honestly, for believers, those words should never come out of our mouths because we all sin. At Element, we will tell you up front, every time we get together, you will be sinned against and you will sin against other people. The second thing you have to understand is that sin requires a sacrifice, atonement, propitiation. A penalty must be paid. We know this inherently because when someone sins against you, you want them to suffer. You want them to hurt. You want them to know your pain. But we are not good gods. And the third thing is that that sacrifice will either be Jesus or the other person in your marriage. Jesus is God. He died to pay the penalty for sin. He was the atoning sacrifice for sin. And because he died, you no longer need to try to berate or kill your spouse. Praise God. Hallelujah. And if you don't understand Jesus, when sin happens in your marriage, you're going to want to crucify your spouse, verbally or physically or sexually or emotionally or financially. But one way, you're going to try and get your pound of flesh. You will make them pay. You're going to want to make them atone for what they did. And that is a misunderstanding of the gospel. When sin happens, people want to crucify the marriage, like, oh, it's the marriage's fault. No, you know whose fault it is? Yours. That's whose fault it is. Who is going to be the sacrifice? Jesus is going to be the sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 1, God tells you, if you sin, you die, period. Someone has to die. Jesus dies that we might live. Sin is what you think. It is your thoughts. It is what you say. It is your words. It is what you do. It is your deeds. It is is why you do it. It is your motive. God sees our hearts and knows why we do what we do. Sin, sin is commission, meaning the things that you do. It is also omission, not doing the things that you're supposed to do. It is why a man who doesn't love and honor his wife, even though he said, never says a mean word to her or abuses her, can still be in sin if he is not honoring her by actively loving her. And we are all guilty at some point. And what do we do with that sin? We repent because God offers his people reconciliation. God's spirit convicts us of, of sin. Some people get really depressed and they feel guilty all the time when they simply just need to repent of their sin and move on because God has washed you clean. You can move forward again. When the Magisterial Reformation hit, um, where the Protestant church uh, essentially comes out of, Martin Luther, people see the opening thing to that as him nailing 95 theses to the Wittenberg Cathedral door. You know what the very first one of those was? It's this. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's how it starts, right there. If you go to our Song of Solomon page on our website, ourelement.org forward slash SOS for Song of Solomon, you can get a PDF uh, by Tim Keller all about repentance. It's only two pages. I recommend you all read it. 
Repentance is one of the major ways we make progress in the Christian life. It is important to consider and understand this, how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance. If you look at a lot of religions in the world, repentance is you basically do this thing to make God happy so he will continue to bless you and give you all kinds of things and answers your prayers. And if that's true, religious repentance is A, selfish, B, self-righteous, and C, bitter. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. When we we repent of sin, no matter where it is, it is not despairing over our sin. It is always done in hope. Now, guilt can be an important stop on the journey to get you where you need to be, but it is not meant to be the end of the line. Repenting is a gift God gives his people for our own sake, not his. Repenting does not increase God's desire to be with us. It increases our capacity to stand more in the light with him. The hope we cling to in the face of sin is not our own goodness because we don't have any. It is God's goodness. In the book of Acts, when the church first starts, it was a sermon by Peter, and essentially the sermon was this boiled down to us in a couple words. It was, repent of your sins to Jesus, and Christianity starts. That's the beginning of it. Repentance is turning away from our sin that leads and takes us to a place of restitution where we say, I'm sorry. We are not trying to earn forgiveness, but acknowledging we have done damaging things with our lives and we want to make amends. And it's not just a couple of weeks. It is an entire lifetime of effort. Again, you must understand Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is not everyone else who has a problem. It is you and I who have a problem. And only Jesus is a solution. And you will never have the relationship or the marriage you dream about until you repent to Jesus. Jesus paid for your sin. He paid for the sin of that person who has sinned against you. And yes, people who hurt you should come to you. They should repent to you. They should say, I'm sorry. But if they don't, it doesn't give us right to hold grudges and hurt them back. Jesus died in our place for sin once for all. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And we have been given grace. And relationships can be restored when we offer that grace to others as well. Now, if you are married, I'm going to give you the hardest question I have given you to ask your spouse, either tonight or on the way home, because... This is a doozy, but I want you to ask this question, and you don't get the right to get all bent out of shape when the other person is just honest with you, okay? Here's the question. Do you feel like I have made you to suffer to appease me when I think you have sinned against me? Do you feel like I have made you to suffer to appease me when I feel like you have sinned against me? I want you to ask your spouse that question. And then when they say yes, because we all have done it, okay? So don't be all, yes, what do you mean yes? The the answer is going to be yes. Then hopefully they can tell you when and how so you stop doing it. And then they will ask you back and you'll go, yes, right now. No, you know, (laughs) you know. That you will answer back and you you will let them know. And what you have to understand is when someone acknowledges their sin, you don't beat them over the head with it because that's a sin. Jesus died so you could both be free and your relationship could be what it is supposed to be. This is one of the reasons we bring you guys to communion every single week. Because communion is the place where we understand that Jesus died for us. So we break that cracker like his body was broken for us. We dip it in the wine of the grape juice representing his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be reconciled. We can be redeemed. We can repent before him and live and walk a new life. 
And we're supposed to be imitators, as Ephesians 5.1 tells us, imitators of our God. We offer that to other people as well. So in communion this morning, we invite you guys to do that, to repent, and then seek out reconciliation with those around you, especially your spouse. The band's going to come up, and they will do in a couple songs. And as they do, we hope to give you this opportunity to take communion, to, to pray where you're at. And if, and if you have been in a place where maybe you haven't forgiven your, your spouse, or maybe you have a friend in your life that you haven't forgiven because they've done this thing, and how dare they? Well, there would be some deacons and elders in the back, and they would love to pray with you. Maybe that, maybe that person's in this room. Maybe you're here with your spouse, and you're like, oh, we're so mad. Why don't you grab one of the deacons or elders and go, we need to talk, and have them go and pray with you. Uh, we'll worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And so we give the opportunity every week. We, you know, we give of ourselves to, to God. We give of ourselves to each other and there's some food and stuff in the back and again we do encourage you guys to be involved in the gospel community there are signups in the back if you'd like to be in one because we are not meant to walk this road alone the the main thing that resets and starts the reconciliation in this fight is when she seeks out her friends and her friends aren't the ones who are like oh yeah you override just be mad at that guy they ask her so why are you mad what happened do you have a right to be that way they ask the hard questions and they're very honest with her and that's what a gospel community is we are honest with each other. So we invite you to grab some food, get to know some of the people in the back, and hopefully at some point we'll get you plugged into one. God is good. And he reconciles with his people and wants us to reconcile with each other. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we do ask as a people that we would be those who reconcile with those around us. You are the only God, and you have sought your people to redeem and restore us from all the garbage that we have done. And Father, I ask that this morning we would understand that it is your kindness and your grace and your hope that leads us to the place of repentance in our lives. Father, have us learn to be a humble people that set ourselves aside live in the great hope and trust that you have bestowed upon us to even call us your children. Father, have us ask the hard questions and give us the strength and the grace to change. We thank you for being so good to us that we cannot even fathom it. And so give us the ability to be that good and gracious to others around us as well. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.